Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Kat Kinsman. I'm senior food and drinks editor at Extra Crispy, and we've got a new book, Breakfast, the most important book about the best meal of the day. So this book was written by you and the other editors of Extra Crispy. Tell us about Extra Crispy. Oh, wow. It's such an exciting, uh, this this book, I'm so excited about it. And it's actually a collection of uh, material that we've run on Extra Crispy and some new things that we've written. Extra Crispy is your one-stop shopping for everything about breakfast, culture, news, essays, recipes. If it's breakfast, we're going to cover it. And um, I know it sounds silly to have a site that's just about breakfast, but since we launched in June of 2016, we realized that when you go narrow, you can go really, really deep. So we use breakfast as a Trojan horse to talk about a million different things. In 1875, speaking of deep, (laughs) cookbook author Marion Hart Harlan praises eggs as elegant and frugal. So here's the age-old question. Why do we eat eggs for breakfast? I've never understood that. Oh my goodness. Um, We actually have an essay. I don't know if it's in the book, but we have run an essay, I believe recently, about why that is. I mean, think about it. They're they're so incredibly adaptable. Um, They... uh, you know, they can store for a fairly long time. They are a fantastic and inexpensive source of nutrition, of protein. Um, they keep you going for a while. And again, I, I think it goes back to the adaptability of it, that there are so many different ways that you can eat them. Um, and they're, they're really personal is what I've realized. It's something that without a whole lot of effort, you can make for yourself in the morning and you can make it exactly to your liking, or it's not too hard to guide somebody else to make them exactly the way you want them to. It's an easy way to give somebody pleasure and sustenance and, um, a little bit of affirmation in the day. I see you. I know how to make you happy. Here's eggs just the way you want them. I didn't know that in the early 1900s, breakfast cereal was invented in response to indigestion blamed on meat and egg consumption. That sounds like BS to me, right? Like it sounds like a marketing thing. Oh, absolutely was. So the people um, at Battle Creek, the uh, the scientists there who came up with with raisin bran and flakes and all that kind of stuff were doing it. Um, they, they were wellness freaks in a really uh, early incarnation and they were doing it to you know, quash libido. And, what? You know, they really? Were doing all sorts of Oh, it's it's just so nuts. It's in the early days of Kellogg's. Um, they got some really uh, some zealots in there to uh, start to develop these um, these foods that were supposed to be optimized for health, but also uh, sort of had moral fiber to your day. And if you look at all the stuff that they were doing in Battle Creek and then uh, these sort of wellness resorts that they had, they were doing these things to uh, you know control people's emotional impulses and, you know, set them on the path of the good and righteous. It's, it was almost culty how all this stuff uh, came about. Um, I'm actually working on a piece right now about the sort of the, the moral 
intertwinings um, of of the early days of of flake cereal. Um, it's it's really astounding stuff if you dig back just a little bit over a century. I feel like fried eggs are a bit out of fashion at the moment, but I love a good fried egg, especially a diner fried egg. Talk about some ways to upgrade the good old fried egg. Oh, one very, very easy thing to do is use a ton of olive oil. Get it just ripping hot, put the egg in there and uh, spoon the olive oil a little bit over the edges until they get good and lacy. It's a very, oh, I wish I could say the term. Um, it's a Spanish term. Um, Chef Katie Button really drove this home to me as her favorite way to do it. But th- the way it translates is like lacy eggs. So uh, the center of it remains good and and you know and runny and beautiful. But if you can get the pan to the right temperature and use olive oil instead of butter, because butter can burn. Um, and it, and it gets that sort of acrid taste to it, but olive oil can take a little bit more heat and you get those brown, crispy, lacy edges and still have that runny yolk. And it's the simplest thing in the world to do. Another really, really easy thing to do is just put a little bit of Aleppo pepper over top of it, just a little bit and, um, have that olive oil with it. And that is a a little, um, bit of heat, a little pop of just a little pop of joy and, uh, and sensory pleasure to start the day with. And just the textural, um, the, the, the texture of the lacy edges of the egg with a little bit of crunch of good salt, the Aleppo pepper, if you have that with some, some bread, that's just hits every single sensory button. And it's a great way to start the day. There's an infamous op-ed in the New York Times that says, and I will quote, brunch is for jerks. <laughs> what are your thoughts on brunch, especially brunch in New York City? Here's my thing. Um, I've always ascribed to the notion that if it tastes good, it is good. I'm laissez-faire about these sorts of things. I realize the older I get, the less prescriptive I am about things that bring people pleasure. I I mean, we are living in times of turmoil right now where I really believe if you can uh, bring any sort of simple pleasure into your life and it's not harmful to anyone else, why not? Um, The great thing about brunch is the community aspect of it. I mean, sure, you can go have brunch by yourself. That's absolutely fine. You can have it with one other person, but ideally it's a vehicle for um, community. We had we ran this piece a few months ago by Nick Sharma, who, oh my gosh, I love this man. He has a book coming out. It's, it's seriously one of the loveliest cookbooks I have ever seen. Everybody needs to uh, buy Nick Sharma's book, but he wrote a piece about why gay brunch is so important. And especially in his uh, early days, um, you know, sort of after coming out and moving and, and coming together in this safe space with friends where they could go through what happened that week and talk through their their loves and their and their heartbreaks and everything in, in a in a safe communal space um, before marriage was legalized. It, it's it was such a, a powerful, beautiful space. And you talk now about the transition of now that um, marriage is legal and people are able to host you know brunch at home with their with their um, spouses and invite people over to their their houses. But but talking about the early importance of of 
these sort of queer spaces to get together over brunch. I mean, if mimosas and sort of crappy eggs Benedict can be a vehicle for, for that sort of thing, I am all for it. So there's a whole section devoted to the Dutch baby. What is that? <laughs> well, because it makes you look like a freaking genius. So I, I hadn't really made them. And um, Dawn Perry, who has a few, she's goddess on earth. Um, and she's at Real Simple. And before uh, she had really started up in this position at Real Simple, she was writing a bunch for us. And she, I trust everything this woman does. Everyone needs to watch her show. Um, but she really drove home the fact that um, they're incredibly versatile. Um, I think this thing was called like a Dutch baby is a little black dress at your party or something, something yeah. like that. Um, but really it's this thing where you just bring together a few ingredients, you put them in a cast iron pan and it puffs up. It makes it, it's such an ooh la la kind of moment. You can make it sweet. You can make it savory. You can adapt it to, uh, you know, whatever your particular taste is. You can make them all minute at a party and have that great razzle dazzle moment where, you know, it's brunch and, oh, no big deal. I just made this great big explosive, you know, uh, you know, popover thing. And you're, you know, everyone you brought there, um, you know, sees your moments of ooh and ah and gets to watch it move and deflate and it can be dressed however you want. It's a, it's a glorious bit of, of theater that is really easy to pull off. I went down the rabbit hole researching this recipe, and in 1966, Craig Claiborne was at Dave Ayers' home in Hawaii. Ayers was the editor of Honolulu Magazine at the time. David made a Dutch baby for Craig, and Claiborne came back, wrote about it in the New York Times. And it's such a beautiful thing. And I know for a fact that Martha Stewart loves the lemon butter Dutch baby recipe uh, that you have on page 47. I, oh my gosh, what a classic that is. Those particular flavors are, they just work so beautifully and it makes you feel like you're eating pie for breakfast, which I wholeheartedly endorse, by the way. <laughs> um, pie for breakfast is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, Touch Babies, I feel like they're, they have such a funny history. There is a town I'm totally blanking on. Um, on the West Coast, I feel like it's in California. It was like a gold rush thing. Um, I should know about this because I wrote about it for the site recently. Um, but can we talk for a second about Craig Claiborne and what an amazing taste maker yes. was? Oh my gosh, I think I'm probably one of the you know, few sort of uh, you know people who, who right now have uh, have read the memoir. Are the works and all of, of his his memoir. People have forgotten about Craig, and it breaks my heart. He was such a tastemaker. He, um, I remember him. I don't remember when he did it, but um, the importance of him writing about the sh shrimp and grits at Crook's Corner yeah. with, with Bill Neal. Um, you know this 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 dish that you know it's it, it has some sort of murky origins and stuff but he saw the beauty in this wrote about it in the times and all of a sudden people started really paying attention to this corner of uh north carolina um i've made his um mother's uh spaghetti dish on more than one occasion i've made his shrimp and grits like what a legacy he really did the legwork to go around the country see the things that people were doing regionally and then, you know, nobody should need justification or the imprimatur of a, you know, giant publication. But at the time, like he used it as such an incredible platform to really sing the praises of these regional dishes and make them national favorites. Sorry, I love Craig Claiborne. <laughs> well, he's one of those guys, you know, people say, if you could have a dinner party and invite anyone living or dead, who would you invite? He's one of those guys you want at your dinner table. Oh 
my god, him and Clementine Paddleford. Who's that? No doubt the two. Oh god, she was spectacular. That's a great name. So she, um, isn't it? The best? She was incredible. There was a, um, a bio of her that came out um, a few years back, and. And she was an incredible uh, woman who uh, she was at one of the rival papers in New York. Um, she flew her own plane. So she was a pilot and <laughs> would fly her little plane around the country to uh, sort of go in and see how people really were cooking in all of these these regions, like really the the kind of cooking that would be in church cookbooks. That was, you know, not, you know, highfalutin restaurant food because there really wasn't a whole lot of highfalutin restaurant food, but really talking about home cooking um, in regions all over the country. She would get in her little plane and fly there and, um, you know, come back and write in her paper. And um, she and she, you know, she was an established newspaper editor. And then Craig Playboard came in a few years younger than her and he was young. He was cute and he sort of ate her lunch. So people really don't know as much about her legacy, but, um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name. I'm so blanking this morning on the names of all the books, but look up the book about her is really, really, um, just a fantastic thing. Food that's weird to people you've never heard of. Isn't weird to those who grew up eating it. So I guess liver much would fall into that category. I didn't grow up eating it. I oh have no idea what it is. I think it could use some rebranding just yeah. in the name because if people actually had it, it would oh, it would blow their minds. Um, that piece by Sherry Castle that is in the book, first of all, like Sherry is a tremendous advocate for um, North Carolina food. She's an extraordinary writer and um, she she really sings the praises of you know mountain food. Um, and 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 North Carolina food, and really, you know, sings to the 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 dignity of these foods that a lot of these foods come from deprivation. So liver mush is liver, and uh, mixed in with with grains, and um, it's essentially made into a loaf and fried, and you slice it, and it gets golden brown on the outside. It's a you know a little bit sort of mushy, spongy on the inside. It's you know it's it's basically like uh, a meatloaf. Um, and it is the most glorious thing. There are a few towns, um, throughout North Carolina that throw festivals in honor of it. And there it's, there's a brand called Mises that is one of the, the premier brands of it. And they have liver mush. They also have liver pudding, which is very like it with a slightly different, um, spice blend to it. And they're just really preserving this heritage. There are a few different brands that make it. Um, my husband's from North Carolina. So every time I go down there, I try to seek out, um, all the different, uh, regional brands and variations of it. But, um, but like what you said, the food that people didn't grow up eating might seem weird to them. Um, but they, that's, this is, part of our core mission at extra crispy is to really give, give the dignity to these foods that they deserve because, um, I, it, it really bothers me when people yuck other people's yum, um, just because they're unfamiliar with it. Food is so inextricably tied to identity that to, um, slam somebody else's food just because, because it seems weird or unfamiliar is 
unfortunately for, you know, since time immemorial, been a way to other people. Um, it's done to first generation or immigrant kids who bring their lunch to school and it smells different than what the other kids are eating. It's a way, it's something that is often used as a tool to alienate people who might not be from the dominant culture when in fact it should be a tool to bring people uh, together. Here is this little part of my culture, my heritage. Here is a way to, you know, understand a little bit more about me. Um, it's an act of generosity to share your food. You know, and it's something we really, really try to emphasize on Extra Crispy that we approach all foods with an open mind and an, an open heart and ideally let somebody from that culture um, tell the story of it and why it's so important and hopefully open up some new doors. To it. 11 fancy butters were sourced to find the best one, which is Bordier. <laughs> is it Bordier or Bordier? That is a really good question. We've been Let's just go with Bordier. Yes. I believe that is how someone who actually knew how to pronounce yeah. it, to <laughs> pronounce it, but we've been all over the place on that. I got to take part in this tasting. <laughs> I saw on a Mind of a Chef episode where Chef Ludo goes to the factory. Have you seen that? Where they slap the butter with the... Um, paddles and they stamp it and they put salt on it it's obscene it's glorious so we brought in my friend john winterman who is the managing partner at batard but he is also a butter freak i believe we gave him the name maitre de beurre for <laughs> <laughs> to, to guide us through this we are all the whole extra crispy team all your butter aficionados freaks obsessives whatever you want to call it and uh we uh, sourced all of these butters. It was mostly my fantastic colleagues, um, Margaret Ebai and Rebecca Ferkser. Um, I think at some point, Margaret is just going to go off on a butter sabbatical. This is her dream <laughs> to uh, go somewhere and really learn how to make butter. Well, um, she and Rebecca went out and sourced all of these uh, different high-end butters. They had already done this with uh, grocery store butters. And in that one, Kerrygold came out top as it should. It's a fantastic butter. Um, but we, <laughs> I think we grabbed the corporate card to, uh, to expense butter and tried them. Uh, they, they tried it on um, bread. I have a gut condition and I can't really eat bread. So I'm trying to remember what I had it on. It was, oh, radishes. I had mine on radish slices. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, it was it was a really great way to get to do it. Also, I you know, it didn't fill up on bread. I was mad not to be able to have it with the with the bread, but you know, we work with what we were given and we taste we just tasted them through, came up with um, you know, the top few and then kind of went um, you know, put them all head to head and that Bordier was incredible. And I have to say the there was a, a slight follow up later because Bordier does or Bordier, Bordier, we've decided on Bordier, <laughs> um, does variations with those we were just doing um, salted butters, I believe, because otherwise you can really extra fall down the rabbit hole. Um, Bordier uh, does one with um, esplette pepper in it. They do a few different oh, variations. No. Well, um, Margaret found the raspberry one. No. And it is, they only make a little bit. It is one of the best things I've ever had in my life. So it is, it is butter. It is raspberries. It is raspberry juice. We all tried it and we all just stared at each other uh, for, we could not speak <laughs> for our, so uh, Ryan Grimm, who is the editor of, of the site, who is just what, a delightful human being. If you've ever seen the, the instant pot videos that I do, he is Mr. Grimm yes. in, in the videos. 
and he, <laughs> he's our boss, <laughs> he, but he, he was just, you know, a thousand yard stare, like it, just eating this. Um, it, it, it was the purest raspberry. It was the most beautiful butter. If you buy it where we bought it, we bought a quarter pound of it. It would be $72 a pound. But we, we sort of rationalized this because we got a quarter pound and said, if you go into, into a party, you could bring a bottle of wine. And that's great. It gets put on the shelf with the other wines. If you roll in with this butter and a baguette, you are the star of the party. It's oh my God. <laughs> Where do you get this butter? Do you know? Can you get it in we New York City? At, yes, you can. Oh, we got it at La District, which conveniently is right below our office in Look Brookfield Place. <laughs> okay. I'm going down there today. We, yes. Actually, if you want want me to, to do it. When I get into the office, I will look and see if they have it so you don't waste a trip. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. How did you get the inspiration to turn a king cake into French toast? So Margaret and I, Margaret Ebai, um, who is our senior culture editor, and uh, uh, she and I both are New Orleans obsessives. So she grew up in <clears throat> Mississippi and would go to New Orleans all the time. I've been going since oh, oh golly um so i used to work for uh cnn and i had the pleasure of my my intro to um new orleans was we would have these secret suppers and i got to um throw one at james carville and mary madeline's house they are such tremendous ambassadors for the city they are food obsessives and they let us throw this party at our our house um uh, uh, sorry at their house i wish it was my house um <laughs> so you know i had sort of a crash course in uh you know getting to go to new orleans my husband was supposed to meet me and our dog got sick and he couldn't come so i was like okay well that means we'll have to go back and you'll have to come with me he fell in love with it too so we go um you know three, four times a year <laughs> because we love it so much. And Margaret goes as often as she can. And she actually rides in a Mardi Gras crew. So, um, you know, a great act of, of love from both of us is to bring back a king cake when, when we go. And, you know, we were just thinking like king cake is, is, uh, there's a lot of really bad king cake out there. The intention is great, but if we're being honest, a lot of it kind of sucks and it gets stale really, really quickly. So we were thinking, you know, it, it would also feel like a sin to throw away king cake. And so we decided to do it two different ways. We made French toast out of king cake and then king cake out of French toast. To me, it exemplified what we do at Extra Crispy, where we really do try to tell stories about particular um, traditions and cultures. And also we have a chance to get really weird. Um and that is, uh, we sort of joke the extra in extra crispy is that we have permission to take things to strange degrees and, and just have a whole lot of fun and find joy in this. I mean, breakfast is a, is a meal that, you know, it can be formal. It can just be for sustenance, but think about those weekend breakfasts when you just get to, to play and, and goof and eventually feed people. Um, and it's, it, it's a really, really fun thing. And we take people seriously uh, and we take people's culture seriously and their identities and stuff. We don't always necessarily take ourselves too seriously. Speaking of extra, chapter six, Frankenfoods and mashups. <laughs> Velveeta, <laughs> Chex, Mix, Nacho, Dirtbag, Casserole. Say that fast five times. That's hard to say. Is <laughs> always a good thing, right? 
So Margaret and I, <laughs> I want to explain, I want to explain dirtbag a little bit, if that's okay. <laughs> um, sure. So this, this all, this all came about because I had never like sort of, you know, I had my notion of sort of the term dirtbag and um, Margaret and I <laughs> were texting once she was at a lake house um, with her, with a bunch of her friends and she was le- leading what she called her best dirtbag life. And I was like, unpack that for me, please. She said, you know, it is the, the self when you are around people who you deeply trust and love that you don't have to put in any sort of guard or airs, you can be wearing whatever you want. You're comfortable, ideally here, you know, in a lake house or, or, or just somewhere where, you know, nobody's fluting it or everybody is just their most chill out, lazy, um, maybe a teeny bit, tipsy kind of self and you're really at your at um you know happy and and free and she texted me saying you know I here's what we have in the house we have oh golly like some leftover bottoms of the bags of various chips uh you know we have some eggs we have some beer we have some bread and she asked me like okay what can I make from this and I was like girl you got a casserole there <laughs> you have every everything you need to make, um, you know, you, I, I am, I'm a big fan of a, of a casserole and, um, you can put absolutely anything together so long as you have, you know, a, you know, some sort of bread-like substance, a liquid, ideally an egg though. You don't necessarily have to have an egg to bind it. And you put it in a dish, you stick it in the oven, then put it under the boiler to get the top crunchy. And, um, it just, out of this came, uh, and I was like, and especially if you can pour beer into there as the liquid, like you win. And Velveeta is its own magical substance. If you don't try to think of it as cheese, you're you're better off. Um, and it, you know, you can you can use real cheese if you want to, but Velveeta really, I think, gets the zeitgeist there. And you can make it with absolutely um, anything so long as you follow the formula. And it's cheesy and delicious, and it's even better the next day. In addition to being the senior food and drinks editor at Extra Crispy, you also write and talk about tough real life stuff, anxiety and depression. And you wrote a book called High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. You started the conversation in the restaurant community about depression, anxiety, addiction, and eating disorders on chefs with issues. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I have um, been pretty open for a long time about my own struggles with anxiety and depression, and then recently a diagnosis of um, ADHD, which was contributing to the anxiety, as I, I found out. Um, you know, it's it's something that I have dealt with uh, as long as I can remember. And I finally, and my friends knew about a certain amount of it and definitely my family did. And I've never been ashamed about talking about it, but it wasn't necessarily something I led with. Um, when I was at CNN, I was the food editor there. And I also wrote for CNN Living and I wrote um, an essay about um, my experience with depression throughout my life. And um, and then later I wrote about anxiety and it opened up a conversation, um, you know, there at work. And then we were able to, it, you know, both of them went viral and I was, they were, uh, really kind and generous and thoughtful enough to let me really, um, you know, explore that further there with some conversations and community stuff that we did. But what happened was that I was also the food editor. So I would be interviewing a chef there or, um, at my next job when we would be doing something on video or whatever it happened to be, or I'd be recording it. And there would be a moment 
where we would stop and turn off the recorder to, you know, change batteries or change tapes. And, um, a couple of times it happened that the chef would be like, Hey, um, actually, can I talk to you about something? And then they would tell me about their own particular struggles with depression or anxiety or addiction or whatever it happened to be, or someone who they worked with in their kitchen. And that happened once. And I thought like, okay, you know, this is somebody who just, you know, they needed to get it off their chest. I'm so grateful that they were willing to trust me with it. Then it happened again. And then it started to happen more than half of the time. And I started to think there's really something going on here. So after, you know, a few months of this, I threw up a website on um, January 1st, 2016. And I put up a poll asking people, what do you Deal, are you dealing with any of these issues? If so, you know, uh, do you feel open talking about it? Um, do you get treatment, all of this stuff? And I figured I'd maybe get a few dozen responses. I've gotten well over 2000 responses at this point, And I started getting letters and calls, emails, um, Facebook messages, Twitter messages from people saying, Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. And I realized it was, it was really a huge crisis. And the month after I started this site, um, three different chef owners, uh, took their own lives, um, that I knew about. Um, it's constant. They're like chefs. I cannot stress this enough. Chefs and hospitality workers and bartenders, um, die all, all the time. And people don't talk about it, whether it is by suicide or whether it is by, as I call it, slow suicide of, you know, rough choices or addiction or whatever it happens to be. And, um, that, that was three in one month, so, uh, you know, a couple that were fairly high or one that was very, very high profile and two that were less so, but people happened to tell me, and I sort of did the math on this and realized, you know, that just the, the toll this takes on the industry. So I started this website. Um, I got the opportunity to speak about it at a few conferences and I realized, you know, this was, this was way, way, way bigger than me. And I couldn't feel field all of this stuff, um, by myself. Uh, it, it takes a toll, um, you know, and I, I'm happy to do it and it's adds so much to me, but that's that, you know, it's, it's a lot. So I started a Facebook group, um, last summer while I was uh, recovering from surgery and where people could just come any hour of the day or night and have open conversations about what they're, what they're dealing with. And there were, um, three months ago, there were 828 people in it. Now, as of last night, there were 2,300 people in oh it. Um, the thing that happened was Anthony Bourdain yeah. killed himself. And he, yeah, which so many people are still reeling from. Um, the, the thing that's been going on also over the course of this last you know, two and a half years that I've been doing this is I've gotten the community of people who are starting this conversation in their own community. Um, there are groups all over the country operating independently and uh, where they're gathering together people um, in the industry and in their particular towns uh, to talk about it, to offer the solidarity. Um, Denver is incredible uh, for that. There was a thing recently changed the name from mile, mile high hospitality hazards. I'm not sure what the new name of it is, but they're doing great work to get people together. There's Ben's friends throughout the South that is specifically for people in recovery in the hospitality industry. And people are uh, really getting together and um, taking care of one another in a way that they haven't before. And for the, for some in a while, I, I have hope that people don't feel like they're alone. They don't feel like it's taboo. They don't feel like they are 
are weak for dealing with these things. Um, I am gutted still as so, so many of us are by the loss of, of, of Tony. And if there is anything halfway okay that came out of this, it is that people are talking and hopefully more lives aren't going to be lost, even though I know that they have been since him. Um, but, you know, hopefully we're, you know, this, the trend will change. I just got back from uh, our beach house. All I brought were Anthony Bourdain books. Yes. And I was just trying to find an answer. Is there an answer in this sentence? What happened? Because everything he ever said was, you know, that was my old life. He he got beyond it and had a child and lived for her, it seemed like. And it's just like, wow, if if he can fall to pieces, we all can. Yeah. No, no one's immune to this. And, you know, this is why I'm, it's really important to me to never say cure about mental health issues. I mean, we'll never know exactly why with him. And you know, we have all racked our brains and our hearts and thinking, is there something I could have said, done any of these things, you know, looking back at the last, you know, DM that he sent me and, you know, is, is there, you know, some, something I should have said, it, but no, that's, that's the thing is like, it, it can come and, and get you at unsuspecting times. I don't say cure. I only ever say manage. And, you know, I'm pretty open about the, the, the fact that, you know, for me, I've been dealing with this for a long time. I'm incredibly lucky. I am, you know, I am a straight, white, cisgendered, married woman with health insurance and employment. I have every single advantage that a person um, could have, and let except for the only way you know there could be sort of more privilege present is if I What's were a man. man. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. But that doesn't make me immune to this. It just it means that I have more resources. Um, to deal with this, I have an incredibly supportive and fantastic spouse. I have um, friends who, and a community for whom I am so grateful. Um, my extra crispy colleagues are so fundamental to um, my my heart. They are. We, you know, it, it sounds maybe silly to some people to say this about a work situation, but it's so an emotional great place to work because we all have genuine af affection and respect and care for one another. And I realize that is a tremendous thing. But at the same time, this summer, I had a very, very dark month where I went down. Uh, I have a panic disorder as well. And I had, it was especially post um, Tony, I um, ended up going around the country uh, speaking with the groups of, of chefs, I do a lot of closed door meetings with chefs where I just get people together and talk about it, talk about what they're feeling about getting resources. Um, you know, I, the day it happened, the day we all found out about it, you know, the week before I had been at the Atlanta food and wine festival where Kim Severson and I, you know, got people together and talked about things. Um, I was talking in Charleston over the next couple of days. I was already scheduled for that. I went to the Aspen food and wine festival the next weekend and got together chefs there. Um, I was on the road. I was ragged. I was revisiting my own trauma. I was sad about the loss of my friend and worried about other, um, friends of his. 
and I was just in a susceptible place and I got really, really dark. And I had a panic attack that lasted for an entire month. And I am someone who is, you know, has all the therapy, has all of the resources, has all of this stuff, and it still happens, which is why I, you'll see me on Twitter, um, having check-ins with people. Um, it's, it's incredibly important to check in on on people who seem like they're doing okay and people who don't seem like they're doing okay to ask your friends how they're doing and, um, and let them know it's okay. If they don't say like, Oh, I'm fine. They can give you the real answer. I can't say this enough. It's so important to check in. Um, I also, especially in this age of social media where everyone's Kim Kardashian, everything's amazing and it might not be. Yeah. It's, um, so I, I also, uh, got trained as a crisis counselor with crisis text line, which everyone needs to have this number in their phone to share it with everybody. You text 741-741 in the States. Um, you can contact them by direct messenger on Facebook. And there is somebody there 24-7 to talk you, as they call it, from a hot moment to a cool calm. And it's an incredible thing. And so I, I trained as a, a counselor there. So I, I learned how to you know, really like deescalate situations. And a very important thing I learned there was the importance of asking people point blank if they're thinking about killing themselves. And that is a harsh thing to have to say. I know people think that if you bring up suicide, that it makes people more likely or puts the notion in their head. Um, what they told us is it's actually the opposite because it's, you know, brings it out into the open, doesn't just makes it not just this, um, you know, this, this taboo thing, it actually shocks some people into reality. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. Actually, now that you say the word, verbalizing you know, it. it's an, yeah. And it's an awkward conversation to have, to ask somebody, but you know, several times recently I have had to, I've asked friends that, and you don't, and sometimes you get a very, very scary answer. But you know, the thing I always say to chefs is, um, Yes, it's awkward if your line cook cries in front of you. That's a hell of a lot better than crying at their funeral. And I'm sorry to make it so stark, but that it, they, those actually are the stakes of it too. So, you know, during this really rotten time that I was having, you know, that was sort of spurred by being away from my support systems, being tired, revisiting trauma, uh, um, you know, a couple of stressful situations, you know, my, my sleep was bad. My, you know, my therapist was out of the country for three weeks and stuff. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have, you know, you know, people around me saying like, you know, who I could say, I'm not okay to. And, you know, what I ended up, you know, my therapist came back in town. I went and saw my physician who, you know, put me on an ADHD, um, medication that, Honestly, within 45 minutes, my brain felt calmer than it had in a month or longer. And it, it was an amazing thing. Um, I was lucky to be able to, uh, to ask for help and to have people around me saying like, hey, you know, what are you doing for yourself? But, you know, I'm somebody who talks about this pretty openly. And I think of myself as, you know, a solid, stable person who has, you know, I've been lucky enough to have some incredible career opportunities and, um, you know, and it can still happen to me. So we really, really, really have to keep checking in on our people, no matter what beautiful things they're putting on Instagram, yeah. uh, whatever they're saying, they, you know, look for the messages, um, between the lines or even just send them a text saying, just thinking about you. It, it really, it really matters to do that. 
For season four of Cook Read by the Book podcast, I'm kicking off a new segment called The Last Meal. On a lighter <laughs> on a lighter note, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you had to place an order for your last meal on earth, what would it be? I'd honestly be happy going out with a with an egg and cheese or bacon bacon egg and cheese on a roll from a deli, cup of coffee, <laughs> maybe a glass of champagne. I mean, that is that that egg and cheese sandwich, which I can't eat because my gut thing. But if I knew it was my last meal, it really wouldn't matter. <laughs> um, I I love that perfect as my my friend Eric Diesel calls it the deli egg bomb. Um, it's it's it satisfies all my texture needs. Um, it just it never fails to put a smile on my face. So I think it would have to be that. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Ah, on the web, well, extracrispy.com. Um, it's, that is home base. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Kitten with a Whip. On uh, Instagram, I'm Kat Kinsman. And if you go to, to tarts.org, which is you know, the domain that I've had since 1997, I think you can also get there from katkinsman.com. That has all the links to all of um, social and a link to buy this fantastic Extra Crispy book by the um, editor of Extra Crispy. Um, I, just, I want to give a shout out to Ryan Grimm, Margaret Eby, Rebecca Ferkser, and then um, Kate Welsh, who recently uh, moved on from the team to a fantastic opportunity. But um, they all put their heart and soul and everything into this book. Our former designer, Lauren Colm, um, did so many of the illustrations. The team in Birmingham shot the heck out of this. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, Hugh Atchison wrote an incredible forward. So we'd be remiss not to mention all those fantastic people. <laughs> it's like an award show. I'm playing you off with the music. I know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for all of your great work that's changing lives. And thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate and review Cookery by the Book. You can also follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. Thanks for listening.